Good to see all of you this morning. Glad you're here. If you are one of our guests, we invite you to stick around after services. Let us get to know you, and you get to know us just a little bit better. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We continue our study through the book of Philippians with the theme of empowered to rejoice, and we are seeing the various ways in which God has empowered Christians to experience joy in their lives, even when circumstances, and perhaps especially when circumstances, are unfavorable. Paul, writing from a Roman prison, chained to a soldier, and yet, as we saw last week, as we'll continue to see throughout Philippians, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, he writes. We're going to pick up our reading here, Philippians chapter 1. In verse 19, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Let us pray. Lord God, we we desire to hear Paul this morning and really to, to hear your Spirit through Paul. We pray that we would see clearly the joyful desire that is ours because you've given it to us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The current trend among people is toward science, especially as it pertains to virus, virology, vaccines, and pandemic. One could say that for many people, they say, for to me, to live is science. Or, and perhaps related to this, for me, to live 
is safety. Of course, for others, they are news junkies, politically savvy, they are current, they are up to date on the latest events. And so, for them, they may say, for to me, to live is politics. Or, for to me, to live is news coverage. For others, they may say, for to me, to live is pop culture. Or, for to me, to live is social media. On and on the list goes. But there is one, I believe, in particular that is true for many, many people. They may not admit it, but deep down in their heart of hearts, they say, for to me, to live is fear. What is life for you? We know that the Christian has not been given a spirit of fear and timidity. Instead, we have the Holy Spirit. For Christians... If we are to say any of these, these are all false hopes. These are all faulty comforts. Each of these, all of these, and and many others are desires. They are expressions of the heart. And yet, they cannot provide what only God can give us. As Paul writes these verses in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 30, He is pointing out that that God enables Christians to have, to know, and to hold joyful desires. What are those joyful desires that Paul has in mind? He presents the joyful desires that God promotes in Christians, in us even. And it begins with the joyful desire to glorify Christ. He says there in verse 20 that, Uh, As always, Christ will be honored in my body. He also talks about, uh, for the, the Philippian Christians, that they would have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. The the joyful desire of glorifying Christ manifests itself in Paul's life despite the prison cell. And he is in prison when he writes this. And yet he says, "I, I rejoice And I will rejoice. I rejoice now, and I will rejoice in the future. He acknowledges, notice in verse 19, he acknowledges two sources of help. One is human, one is divine, or at least of a divine source. He talks about through your prayers. There's the the human side of this. That Christians are to be praying for one another, and that Paul covets the prayers of his fellow saints for his particular situation. But then he goes to the divine source of help, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That through the prayers and through the help that the Spirit of God gives him, that he will be delivered from his current situation. And really, what is it that the the human side of this is praying for? These Christians, no doubt, are praying for the help that comes from God. So all of this comes ultimately from God. And so Paul has this eager expectation. It's as if his head is uplifted. His neck is outstretched. He's he's waiting for the deliverance that God will give. That's the idea there in verse 20 of my eager expectation. It's outstretched neck, head uplifted. And hope, hope is the confident expectation that what Paul needs, even though he may be in suspense now, God will give him and God will supply it. He looks to the future and he says, I will not at all be ashamed. 
No need to be ashamed for the Christian. Notice verse 22. He talks about how he is uh, to live in the flesh. And that means fruitful labor. And yet, which of these two? And he's talking about life and death. Which of these two I, I cannot, I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell, he says. You see, Paul, just like every other human being, is not omniscient. Omniscience, that is all-knowingness, that belongs exclusively to God. God is omniscient. So Paul, he, he doesn't know all things. There are some instances in his life where certain future events are revealed to him, revealed to him by God, of course. I think of in Acts chapter 20, and he he knows it's been revealed to him that he's got to go to Jerusalem in order to be arrested. So certain future events at times are revealed to him, and yet he doesn't know everything that's going to happen to him in the future. He, like us, had to exercise faith, the same faith and patience concerning the future and what it holds. He talks about being living in the flesh. And, and here, I know sometimes Paul uses that in a more technical or perhaps even theological con, uh, concept, but here it seems he does have in mind the body. And he amplifies this, and it's to, to talk about the transitory nature of life in the body. Why he can talk about whether by life or by death, whether it's in life or in death. In either event, Paul's focus is to exalt Christ. And he, he joyfully desires glorifying Christ and exalting Christ in his life and in his death. That's the starting point for this, is that joyful desire of glorifying Christ. And you see this woven throughout this text here. Life and death, though. Those are two options that are presented to to Paul. And so, let's talk briefly about those two. First, glorifying Christ in life, that is a joyful desire. And Paul acknowledges it as such. Notice the first part of verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. He goes on in verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It's a good thing to glorify Christ in his life. And then verses 24 through 26, after he kind of works through all these, these two different scenarios, and he talks about death, and, and his, that's his desire, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But after he works through it, he's like, oh, you know, it's necessary to re- for me to remain in the flesh. On your account, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you. Here's the thing. As always, this all ties back to verse 20. As always, Christ will be honored in my body. And another way of saying that, Christ will be magnified in my body. Christ will be glorified in my body. Christ will be praised in my body. Whatever Paul did, he acknowledged Christ would be glorified in his body. And if it so happened that the verdict was rendered in his favor and he was free to go from his imprisonment. Christ knows, or Paul knows that Christ would be glorified in that and would be glorified in the continued fruitful labor that he produced from that. The, the further ministry that he, he had before him, he would continue in that. And again, in that ministry, Christ would be glorified. 
And then verse 24, that, uh, that necessity. Paul, he, he talks about, my, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And yet, he knows the difference between wants and needs. And while he may want to depart and be with Christ, he knows that it is needful, it is necessary that he remain in the flesh. What is required given the current situation is for Paul to remain in the body, alive. Personally, for Paul, he says death is far better, far better to depart and be with Christ. And yet for the sake of his brethren, he must stay in the flesh. He must continue on for the Philippians' progress in the faith, for their joy in the faith. Paul acknowledges he'll remain and continue with them all. The story is told of Gordon Maxwell. He's a, a missionary to India. We have a lot of context, uh, contacts these days in India. Uh, we know about uh, Solomon Raju. That's uh, one of Jack's contacts. Uh, Buddy is in contact with uh, Bontha. I'm in contact via email with a brother there named David. Gordon Maxwell was a, a missionary, went and lived in India sought to preach the gospel to the Indian people. Maxwell one day asked a Hindu scholar if this scholar would teach him the, the language. And the Hindu man replied, No, I will not teach you my language. You would make me a Christian. And Maxwell replied, You, you misunderstand. I, I, I'm simply asking you to teach me your language. And again, the Hindu man responded, he said, no, I will not teach you. No man can live with you and not become a Christian. You see, our lives ought to be so saturated with Christ. They can't be. Our lives can be so saturated with Christ that others cannot help but take notice. You know, elsewhere, Paul affirms, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. It's Christ living in him, so that others might see Christ. So, the Christian life, first of all, it is from Christ. He is the source of our existence. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. But not only that, the Christian life is on Christ. He upholds and sustains our life, just as He upholds and sustains all things. He's holding our life together. And Christ, you see, our, the Christian life is also to Christ. He is the aim, the end, the goal of the Christian life. And since all is from, on, and to Christ, when it comes to our lives, we ought to live so as to honor Christ in the body. To magnify, make Him big in our lives. To glorify Christ with our life. And we acknowledge and we see that's a good desire. That's a holy desire. It's a, it's a desire which produces inexpressible joy. So Paul shows that to glorify Christ in life, that's a joyful desire for a Christian. But then he turns right around and he talks about glorifying Christ in death is a joyful desire as well. 
Notice again, verse 21, we read the first part, for to me to live is Christ. Notice the last part, to die is gain. He talks about being hard-pressed between life and death, the the two choices before him. And then in verse 23, he writes, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know, we talked last week about how the the rivals that were preaching Christ out of mixed motives, they were, what it seems like is they were ashamed of Paul and his chains. Paul shows no signs of having similar ideas about his imprisonment and his chains. Paul is not disgraced by his suffering or by his affliction or by his imprisonment. He's not even ashamed of, of the rivals, per se, and their mixed motivations. But again, his, his focus, his laser beam focus is Christ being honored, being magnified, being glorified in whatever happened to his body and whatever happened in his body. Even if he must face a martyr's death, Christ would be glorified, would be honored in that If his captivity, his imprisonment, led to faithfulness unto death, Christ would be glorified. He talks about his desire. And and the word that he uses there for desire, my desire is to depart. It's nearly always used of evil desire, like lust. But in this context, it means this deep desire comes down from his heart. Paul's heartfelt desire is to depart. And the idea of departing is uh, that of raising anchor and setting off, setting sail. And so Paul, his heart's desire is to to raise anchor on his life and to joyfully head and sail for the sunny shores of eternity, to be with Christ for all eternity, to be with God forever. And he says of this, at the end of verse 23, for that is, and it's difficult to translate this literally, but it's something along the lines of, by far very much better. Bad English, but uh, good Greek as it were, yeah. It's as if he's unable to even find the words necessary to describe the glorious hope of glorifying Christ in death. And what's interesting is Paul sets the trajectory for Christian history and how Christians have viewed death throughout church history. A few decades after Paul writes this, there will be a disciple of the Apostle John, in fact, his name's Polycarp, and his martyrdom has been codified for all of time in what is called the martyrdom of Polycarp. And in that account of Polycarp's martyrdom, Polycarp is, is facing off with one of the Roman authorities, and, and the Roman authority is demanding that he reproach Christ. Polycarp's response is, 86 years I have served him, that has served Christ. 86 years I've served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The Roman authority actually threatens Polycarp and says, oh, we'll, we'll burn you alive. Polycarp responds, he says, you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and then it goes out. But you are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment 
and eternal punishment. What are you waiting for? Bring it on. <laughs> Polycarp, right? And he did. He faced a martyr's death. Everybody dies. Now, we don't like to think about it, talk about it, but that's the truth. No one gets out of this life alive, right? It is appointed unto people once to die, and after that comes the judgment, we're told in Hebrews chapter 9. But for the Christian, death is a defeated enemy because of Christ, because of what Christ did. Death now brings with it the blessed prospect of heaven. It brings with it relief from troubles, trials, tribulations, and temptations. And Polycarp understood this, and he went to a martyr's death with that hope. More than that, death, as Paul talks about here, it translates us from this life into the next life. It translates us into the very presence of Christ. Notice he says to depart and be with Christ. Very much far better. Paul recognized that. That when we depart, we be with Christ. We raise anchor and we sail homeward. I think about our present situation. We're not living under an oppressive regime that's bent on extinguishing Christianity. Jack's not here, otherwise he would say, uh, yet, right? No, we're not living under an oppressive regime that's bent on extinguishing Christianity. But there is a virus which weighs heavily upon many people's minds. The fear of death is at an all-time high. COVID-19 has exposed how many people are unprepared to meet their Maker. COVID-19 has exposed how many people are scared to death of death. Even not a few people, not a few Christians, have demonstrated that for, de for them... Death is not far better. Siblings, we can determine to make the glorification of Christ the primary focus of our death. We can and we ought. Facing death with faith, that is not, that, that's gain. To face death with faith, firmly fixed in Christ, that's gain. And when we face death in that manner, Christ is honored, magnified, glorified in our death. You see, we know that once this life is over, there's no more sickness. Only the resurrection body that's not subject to sickness and giving out and failing us. We know that there's no more bereavement, no more sorrow in that land. Only eternal union and joy inexpressible. We know that there's no more death. There's only eternal life. And so, death comes to each as He has ordained. And we can make it our aim to glorify Christ even in death. And like Paul, we can joyfully desire to do that by facing it with faith. Now, until then, we live life together with one another. And that's what verses 27 and following are about. Glorifying Christ and His gospel with the church can be and ought to be a joyful desire for Christians. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, 
He says, behave as citizens worthily. Only let your life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, why would Paul emphasize the idea of citizenship? Later on, he'll talk about how our citizenship is in heaven in chapter 3. But in the meantime, Paul is contextualizing this message for his Philippian brethren. They lived in a free Roman colony. They would have understood this citizenship language. They would have understood what it means to live like citizens, that it carried certain obligations, privileges, and a high calling, and specifically to the gospel, worthily of the gospel of Christ. It denotes that there are certain obligations that the gospel imposes upon us, that there are certain privileges that the gospel brings, but there is also a high calling to be fulfilled by Christians as a result of the gospel. The obligations of the gospel are several, but a couple that come to mind are obedience and holiness. We owe it to God to live lives of holiness and obedience. The privileges, again, there are many, but how about salvation? He talks about salvation in verse 28. Your salvation, which is from God. And also the blessings that come along with being a Christian. And the high calling of our worthy walk before God. That high calling is to live like Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is he's calling these Christians to live in such a manner that they are faithful kingdom citizens. Faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. But more than that, they're also fearless citizens. Notice that they are, verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. No need to be fearful. You can be fearless. You can be courageous in service to your king. And so they're reminded of this this reality. That the opponents have just judgment coming upon them. That they have destruction that is upon them even in the the present tense, in the present time. But for these Christians, it is salvation and that from God. And so they are to strive together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel, verse 27 concludes. And that idea of striving is wrestling language. It's what the, the wrestler would do in competition with their opponent. And every Christian is to strive at an individual level. We wrestle against spiritual forces of darkness, Paul writes elsewhere. But we also have the corporate aspect of this as well, where we are striving side by side for the faith. And that points to the reality that we need one another. Christians need Christians. Brothers and sisters need one another. Is it possible for a Christian to be a Christian without the church? Well, yeah. Just as it's possible for a student to be a student without a school, I suppose. Or a soldier not to join the army. Or a salesman who has no customers. Or a sailor who is on a ship but doesn't have a crew. Or an author that doesn't have any readers. A football player without a team, a bee without a hive. It's possible. But is it the ideal? How do we strive side by side for the faith without one another? Yeah, we need one another. We're built for it. You see, the faith has been once for all delivered to 
the saints and as members of the community of the saints, the church, we have obligations to one another, just as we have those obligations to Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is so designed that Christ has made it that we stand side by side together with one another to wage war for the glorious kingdom. And so we need fellow citizens. Our fellow citizens call us to order. They call us to the high calling of the kingdom that we live together. And so together we fearlessly face the world. And I believe every generation faces this. The threat of the world, the, the threat of a creeping influence. We know the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John tells us that in 1 John chapter 5. And while many threats do assail the church, even today, as Paul says, their destruction is evident, just as it is clear of your salvation from God. It's certain. You know, we, we worked through this a couple of weeks ago when we began this study back in chapter 1, where Paul wrote there that he who began a good work in you, that is God, will accomplish it, will bring it to completion. And so I say again, brothers and sisters, it is certain. Our salvation from God is certain. It's nearer now than it's ever been, as Paul tells the Romans. And it is sure. The church has always had many opponents, has always had many threats, and there continue to be threats even today. But we can strive side by side with one another for the faith. We can combine our efforts in glorious service to the mission of Christ. That is what is needed now. We are in fall now, aren't we? I think that's what happened back in September. Temperatures are starting to dip down. Winter's coming. And as the temperatures dip, we've already seen some of the birds that are flying. Birds, they feel the impulse to migrate, to take flight. It's this built-in desire to joyfully take wing and to head for fairer regions. And in a similar way, I believe that Christians can experience that joyful desire that's built into us and, and given to us, granted to us by God to, as it were, take leave of this cold, shadowy world and wing our way to fairer regions above. One writer put it this way, Paul's only reason for existence is that he may spend his life in that glad service. And death for that cause would be the crowning service. You know, these alternatives, I mean, they, they seem vastly different. Life and death. Life and death. But to Paul, they brought about the same end. The glorification of Christ in, by, and through Him. And so between dying now and immediately being with God or living longer, spreading the gospel, serving our King. Between those two options, brothers and sisters, 
glorify God in the flesh. Let us pray. Father, I, I read Paul's words. You know, we, we recognize the value of life. We maintain the value of each life, and especially our own. And we pray that you would kindle within us a joyful desire to glorify you in our lives. And at the same time, may we be people who are not scared to death of death. However it may come and whenever you have appointed, but may we recognize the glorious end of both life and death, and that is Christ being honored and magnified in, by, and through us. Again, Father, we read these words and for our 21st century minds, it, it can be, well, if nothing else, challenging. But I pray that by your Spirit in us, you would enable us to meet the challenge. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.